Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here once again this week with John Mitchell. This week, we actually get to talk about some live football because we have a couple of big games coming up in week zero of the 2019 season, um, our big kickoff weekend. First, however, we're going to be talking about the 150th anniversary of college football. Then we'll be diving into a quick breakdown of each of the FBS games and talking about a couple of FCS games that are coming up this weekend. And then in our final segment, we're going to offer you a few quick looks at some of the things we're going to be tailgating this weekend, uh, what we have in store for eating and drinking as we kick off the opening of the season. Um, Before we dive in, though, John, I am so excited that this moment is finally upon us, and I know you have been just as jazzed as I have been, so I'm really excited to talk with you this week. No, man. Me too. It it felt like the offseason was never going to end. I even started watching baseball again recently, and God, what a drag. Like, I'm so happy that I don't have to do that anymore, so I'm fired up. We should always have badass Week Zero games, by the way. I'm fired up that Miami and Florida moved their game up, and we get an awesome start to the season. Yeah, we're definitely going to have a lot of fun stuff to talk about in that second segment. But, you know, before we get into the games that are coming up, I just kind of want to look back at the history that's been. Um, Earlier this week on Monday, um, I had an article come out at Fansided, our uh, parent site here with our Fansided podcast network. And, uh, you know, looking at the 150 greatest moments in college football history, And first and foremost, I just want to say there have been a lot of amazing things that have happened over the past 150 years. And uh, narrowing down a list like that is always going to be an exercise in some subjectivity. So obviously, I'm sure there are some things that any of you fans out there who have read this article already, um, you might have had some different things in mind for your 150 greatest But, you know, I think a big part of it was trying to highlight things across eras and just sort of look at the change over time with college football. Because, you know, it's really fun to think about. That first game between Princeton and Rutgers back in 1869, it was a soccer match. Let's just... uh, Let's just not mince words. That was a soccer match. They were kicking the ball. They couldn't carry it around. I mean, they weren't even playing by rugby rules at the time. So uh, that six to four contest was played under some really interesting rules. But, uh, you know, it's really fun to think about how it's evolved into what's happened today. So, you know, I, I know over the past hundred or not 150 weeks, the past 20 or so weeks that we've been doing this podcast, we've definitely had some moments where we've talked about, you know, our favorite memories over the years and some of the things that we were really excited about um, across time. But I just kind of wanted to dive into a couple quick questions with you, John, um, just to sort of kick us off as we get into this, you know, 150th anniversary celebration that's going to be going on all year. And first of all, um, you know, I obviously have something in my mind in terms of this answer, but I'm just really curious. What do you think has been the biggest change in college football over the past 150 years? Man, that's a, it's a really good question because there's been so much. I, I really look at early on a couple of like kind of basic things. Like you look at 
player safety, how if you look back to the game's origins, the leather helmet days where they're just smashing their faces into each other and everyone's nose is perpetually busted. There's no teeth. It's like a bunch of hockey players out there, right? Yeah. Because there was just no face masks. No one wore like nice pads and everything. It was truly just gladiators going at it. And that was kind of the origin of the sport. It's kind of crazy now how much more focused player safety is. And also if you look at like travel, because mm. you look back at, you know, for instance, one of the big early games that comes to mind, early part of college football for me being an Alabama fan was the Rose Bowl yeah. um, in 1925 or 1926, I guess, um, when Alabama traveled out to Pasadena to play Washington out there and like that by train, you know, they rode yeah. all the way out there by train and that took, you know, however long it took days at a time to get there. And now you look at a West Coast trip as a few hours worth of a plane ride and you're there and you can play wherever. And that's such a huge difference and has really, you know, changed how we're able to do stuff. So, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think that's a really great point. Um, you know, even before that Alabama game, just looking at you know, some of the original or some of the early seasons for these teams, they were played against local seminaries, local high schools, right. local athletic clubs. And you saw this even into the, you know, early 20th century, those first few decades, because travel expenses are are not a small thing when you're dealing with a football team, even in the era of Ironman football and like 14 man traveling teams. It's it still adds up, especially for a sport that, you know, has has grown into a commercial behemoth, but wasn't always that. And I think, you know, when I looked at it and just like as I was breaking down this list that I put together and breaking down these 150 moments, what really stood out to me was just the the growth of commercialization of the sport and um you know, obviously, back in the early days of the sport, you saw the rise first of newspaper reporting and then those first early radio broadcasts in the early 1920s. And then, you know, you start to see television broadcasting come out, especially in the post-World War II era. And that just really launches into a new realm. You know, that's where we see conflicts between schools and between the NCAA and who controls, you know, that, that honeypot that is the, the television revenue and who controls those streams and the access to it. And so, you know, a couple of things that I put on the list as well were things like Penn fighting the NCAA in 1951 when they had a national TV contract with ABC and, you know, looking at NCAA versus the Board of Regents of Oklahoma and Georgia in 1984 and that sort of breaking the, you know, single single negotiator status of the NCAA. And little things like that have changed football just as much as anything that's actually happened on the football field. And I think where it's changed things the most is in the administration of the game, in the coaching of the game. You know, you look at those early, you know, we, for instance, early dominant Yale teams and Harvard teams and Princeton teams, they played with student managers, you know, or 
or it was a system where last year's team captain became the head coach for a year the next year and it just cycled through that way. Now you have coaches at, you know, group of five schools pulling in almost a million dollars a year. And, you know, I specifically have Billy Napier in mind with what he recently brought up with, you know, University of Louisiana students and having to pay back into the athletic fund. But, you know, in general, we see coaches at smaller schools even pulling in high six figures. We see assistant coaches at Power 5 programs pulling in million-dollar paydays. And just the proliferation of money in this sport, I think, is one of the biggest things that has, you know, sort of evolved over time. I think that's a great point. I like how you talked about, too, not just like last year's team captains. Coaching was not really a full-time job. You had football coaches who were coaching other sports or teaching classes at the university, just like high school coaches do. You know, it wasn't a whole lot different. And I think TV contracts, too, had like that the money that that's generated with the you know birth of television, everyone having a giant flat screen and how much money that's been able to bring in to the sport as well and all the massive network deals you see now, all the SEC network, the Big Ten network, all the Longhorn network, all the networks are just generating millions of dollars and how profitable a lot of these football programs are today. It's kind of fascinating. The game is totally different now. Um, some for better, like in terms of safety and maybe some, maybe in some ways for worse too, you know, there's some things that, you know, maybe were done a little better back then, but I, I still think it's still a beautiful sport, right? It's still what oh, we yeah. love to watch, love to discuss. Uh, we've been doing this for over a decade now, uh, talking about the sport together and then longer apart. So yeah. yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I know you posed another question, Zach, too, about where the sport goes next, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, one of the most fascinating things for me um, as a sport historian, somebody that's written about football a lot and obviously thought about it vis-a-vis other sports as well. And I think one of the biggest things that's kind of really unique for me in terms of college football in, you know, contrast to other sports I've written about is just the the rise in significance of conferences over time. You know, we've talked about this certainly, but in the past, the past, you know, three decades or so, we've gone from a landscape where independence was sort of a default status for a lot of at least Eastern teams that just evolved that way and stayed that way across time. And then, you know, you have Penn State going to the, the Big Ten in 93. You have... Um, you know, Miami and Florida State taking, you know, leaving independence to go to the the Big East and the ACC. And you have sort of that that rise in significance of conferences. And I what it also did was created a game of musical chairs. Like I look at when I first started following college football, it was the Southwest Conference and the Big Eight. It wasn't the Big 12. The big, you know, mid-major conference out west wasn't the mountain west it was the whack and you also still had the big west out there that that encompassed a bunch of those other teams the sort of smaller programs um you know the big east didn't even exist yet when i first started following the game um much less the american athletic conference that grew out of it conference usa and the sun belt evolved during that period 
So what I think is going to continue to be one of the biggest changes over time is the way that teams align themselves, you know, both in terms of the conferences that they have and in terms of the structures for playoffs or the structures for the postseason. You know, we've gone from the coalition era in the early 90s through the alliance to the super alliance that was the bowl championship series to now this four team playoff and it's going to continue to evolve. We saw it at the FCS level when that playoff went in. So I think those are going to be the biggest things for me, the continued musical chairs with conferences and just the continued evolution of what the postseason looks like. I wonder Zach, um, with that, with the growing brands, like with college football teams and universities, brands getting bigger, if we're going to see an eventual move to maybe more, independent status for some teams you know bigger brands like texas alabama ohio state if they look to get out of conference and look at bringing in all this revenue themselves especially if the playoff continues to expand and conference championships continue to become more and more meaningless you know maybe that's something the sport's heading in that direction i I think that's a long time away because conferences still mean so much but i could totally see that if these brands keep growing and and developing the way they are you could totally see um something like that maybe happening uh and that would be really interesting be a huge change too maybe even a reverting back to you know some of the previous days uh one of the things for me we're talking about the next 150 years for college football are we going to have football 150 years from today i think is what really strikes me when i look at the future of the sport there's just been so much um controversy in the last few years as it pertains to player safety and all that all we know now about concussions and cte and all that you know what what's next for the sport you have these stories every year of a player getting seriously injured and dying and stuff like that on the field and it's eventually with the way the world works and the way everything's going now are we even going to see football today are we going to see more glorified seven on sevens eventually where contact's a lot less severe and everything like that because you know football is a very dangerous sport we love it um for all of its fatal flaws that it has but it is very dangerous people get seriously hurt people die playing it and it's kind of hard you know because we love it so much but it's kind of hard to rectify that in my mind as well. You know what I mean? Like when you think about, is it worth it? Like as, as a potential like father down the road, like would I want my son, if I had one playing football, I don't think I would be able to say yes at this point in time, just because of the dangers that it brings. So I wonder, and I wonder if a lot of parents feel that way today and you're going to see more of the top athletes gravitate towards baseball basketball even soccer yeah you know and away from football and if you see the talent level really starting to decline across the country for football players i think it's a fascinating and it's not going to take 150 years for this to happen either i think in the next 20 to 30 years we're going to see some massive changes with football and 150 years from now if you told me that the sport didn't exist as it is today i wouldn't be surprised No, I think that's, it's a really great question to raise. And it's one that's definitely come up over time. You know, issues about safety have been there since the outset of the sport. You know, you look at something like the Hampton Park bloodbath between Harvard and Yale back in 1894, when, you know, it was just so sensationalized in the media as this just absolutely gruesome spectacle 
And indeed, players got injured, limbs got broken. It wasn't a pretty sight, but um, at the same time, we've seen that backlash go both ways. And I think if we do see football in 150 years, it's certainly not going to look like the football we know now. Just like if you were to plunk somebody from, you know, 1890 into the present or even from 1950 into the present, you know, they the game would look somewhat familiar, but it would have some drastic changes across the board that, you know, would take a lot of adjustment period to get used to seeing. So I, I, I think we're all wimps. Yeah, I agree with you. We're probably going to we're going <laughs> to yeah, we're going to see more padding. We're going to see more of an evolution toward like you said, protection toward schematics, you know, toward tactical changes as well that that favor player safety, I think even. Um Well, just look at Zach too. This year there's already been a huge change in college football. Some of the biggest and most like exciting plays when I was a kid that everybody got so fired up on was the crackback block. Oh yeah, like the blindside block coming downhill and just decleating somebody that gets the crowd just fired up. That's illegal as of this yep. year. That's completely illegal. Yeah. So that's a huge change. That's a probably a necessary change for player yeah. safety because people get absolutely just demolished oh, yeah. when they're not able to protect themselves like that. And you know we we've seen players be able to make those blocks without doing it. They really used the Josh Jacobs block in the SEC championship as the test case where he put his hands up and just ran by and blocked two players at once without, you know, yeah. smashing into somebody. But just think about how different the game's going to look just because of that, you know, and that's was that's an unfathomable change if you go back even five, ten years ago to think about. Oh, yeah, but at the same time, we don't think about, like, a flying wedge would look just as, you know, crazy to us now as something like that would to, uh, you know, it's the way we play the game now would look to future generations so yeah i think that's a really great point if we do see football and uh you know given the declining you know interest at lower levels it's a very real danger that we might not see football or if we do we're gonna see it and as you said you know reduce number of players per team something like that which can open the field and create safer situations as well so maybe it does go to a seven on seven sort of situation in the future um both to manage the talent pool available and uh you know increase player safety but Whatever it is, you know, over the past 150 years, for all its foibles, college football has given us a lot of incredible memories. And I imagine for as many as of the next 150 years that it may exist, it'll continue to give some incredible memories. Um, so, you know, on that note, before we actually dive into some games, I just want to, you know, tell everybody I, again, like if you haven't read it yet, I'd love for you to go check out that article at Fansided. Um, you know, obviously, as the person who wrote it, I'd love for you to read it. But just in general, I, I, I love when people get to learn more about the history of the game. And there's just been some incredible moments over the years dating all the way back to 1869 and that first soccer match we now call the first football game. So... Um, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, everybody. And when we come back, we're going to be looking at some games against the spread. So stay tuned. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're here talking football this week. We actually have some 
real live football games coming up. Um, it feels like it's been forever, and in the context of this podcast, it has been forever because while we've been with you for the past five months, they've been five months of the long, you know, discontent of our off season. Um, so, you know, John and I, 10 years ago, just to give you a little bit of context before we get into picking these games, uh, 10 years or so ago, we wrote a column with another friend of ours um, for a now long defunct website um, called The Tailgater. And in that column each week, we would break down, you know, the top games of the week and uh, break them down against the spread, make our picks. Um, allow everybody to laugh at us when we were wrong, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, we also released, you know, sort of a packing up the grill segment on, um, you know, Mondays at the end of the week, just wrapping up, you know, top performances, handing out our helmet stickers, looking at key, per, you know, key action, you know, key games that happen, big upsets, whatever. So week to week, that's what we're going to actually get to do with you during the off season is revive the spirit of that column. Um, obviously, with week zero, we don't have, you know, all the space or we don't have enough games to really talk about, you know, what we would normally talk about, which is breaking down the five biggest games of the week and then also giving you our, our personal locks against the spread and then some of those sleeper games that people might not be paying attention to. Obviously, with only two FBS, FBS games coming up this weekend, um, really no option to get into those sorts of sorts of things. But that's what you can expect coming up in the in the upcoming weeks. And then in that first segment, we'll be sort of breaking down what we got to see in the previous week. Um, but yeah, in general, that's that's what we're going to get to do with you during the football season. And I, I know John's, you know, mentioned to me that he's really stoked about it. And so am I, you know, just sort of getting back into this is why we, you know, this was really the the spirit that we brought into reviving this um, column and podcast form. So that said, I'm really excited, John. Me too. While you were saying that, I actually thought about it for a second. This actually goes back a little further. If you remember, this started on Fan Nation. Oh, we posted man. fan posts uh, during the college football season with this kind of stuff. I was thinking about that a second ago. It actually goes back a little further than even the informative sports days. Like, that's crazy to me. Yeah, that would be yeah, about 12 years ago or so. Because um, <laughs> I think I joined that site at, right around my birthday in 06. So, yeah, it'd be... Yeah, about 12, 13 years we've gotten to talk about the game online. It's been really fun. Um, that oh, yeah. said, we have a really fun game coming up for our big kickoff game. Um, Miami Hurricanes, Florida Gators playing in Orlando. Um, they'll be kicking off at 7 Eastern on ESPN. Um, that's obviously the big game on everybody's radar. Um you know, for good reason, obviously, too. You have two big Sunshine State rivals who haven't gotten to actually play each other since 2013. Um, you know, this is a series that's always been really close between these two teams. Miami currently has a slight edge, 29-26 all-time. But, um, you know, the fact that this is taking place on a neutral site as well is going to be really exciting because uh, this is sort of a rubber match of sorts. Uh, game seven on neutral sites, they're currently three and three. Um, 
And then, yeah, also the fact that Florida comes in as highly ranked as they are as a top 10 team. Um, you know, this is really sort of their make or break game for whether or not they're going to be a contender or a pretender in 2019, just right out of the gate. So, um, you know, those are the big things that I'm looking at that just have me absolutely excited about this game. Um, anything else that you're looking at that's just got you jazzed about this, Sean? You know, we talked about this weeks ago when they announced that they were pulling up to August 24th. These teams should play every year. Like Florida and Miami, like these are so like these are so rivals. Like everyone gets so fired up to see these two teams taking on each other. They really should play every year. I'm fired up to see them go at it. And, you know, it's a huge early season game for both teams, right? You've got Florida coming off a 10-win season. Are they going to be legit contenders for, you know, not just a, a New Year's Six Bowl, but maybe a spot in the college football playoff this year? Or can they take that next step in Dan Mullinger, too? And is Miami going to be back again, you know? Yeah. How the hype train will leave the station immediately if Miami pulls off the upset on Saturday night in Orlando, and it'll be all about the U is back. Can Manny Diaz get this team back to, you know, at least respectability after, you know, having such a breakthrough year in 2017 and Mark under Mark Richt and then really falling off last year. Can they kind of get there? And there's obviously a big fascinating story for this because everyone had long thought that the the starting quarterback was an afterthought for the Hurricanes. It was going to be Tate Martell, right? Well, you know, last week Manny Diaz announces that Jaron Williams, the kind of highly touted uh, quarterback, uh, former recruit that, you know, hasn't had a lot of game experience is going to be the guy taking the snaps. And he's going to be taking the snaps against a Florida defense that's going to be one of the best in the country this season. So that's really fascinating to me that he was able to beat out Martell when he was really kind of out of the picture. The talk was about Martell. The, part, the talk was about Nikosi Perry. And there wasn't a whole lot of people, you know, really mentioning Jaron Williams, even though he's got such a Highly, he was such a highly regarded recruit a couple of years ago. So maybe he's the real deal. And if Miami's found a quarterback who is the real deal with the defense that they're going to field with the skill position talent they have, it wouldn't be a surprise if the Hurricanes are, you know, back to that 2017 level or even beyond. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, obviously Miami did have that huge run a couple of years ago. And I think that this year, you know, with the, the switch of coaches, with, you know, everything being in flux and, you know, even as you mentioned, the quarterback situation sort of being as fuzzy as it was until this late season and then throwing that absolute curveball of, you know, going with the guy who seemed like the third wheel at first. Um, I think that's really it, it makes for a lot of intrigue in this game. And that's actually, you know, something that I had sort of clued in as the key matchup I was looking at was how does Jerem Williams fare against this secondary that was just an absolute beast last year? I mean, this group, you know, they intercepted, um, what was it? It was something along the lines of 14. I think they had like an interception a game basically last year or more than an interception a game. Um, this was a team who, who ranked 17th nationally in pass efficiency defense last year. Um, you know, and also was able to get a lot of pressure up front. So, so talking about the secondary, the fact that they're going to have receivers locked down is just going to give that front seven more time to swoop in and, and make life hell for, for Williams. So I think that's the big matchup is how does Miami, you know, 
how does Miami deal with that secondary and how do they give, you know, a really young quarterback, a really inexperienced quarterback, especially enough time to go through his progressions, to wait for receivers to run themselves open on routes um, and to really just crack what is a tough secondary. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you got Jaron Williams making his first college start. He's got to do it at a neutral site in a rivalry game against Florida. Like, no pressure, kid. Best yeah. of luck, you know. But I actually think it's the other side of the ball. When Florida has the ball, that's kind of the matchup I'm going to be looking for because I think it's going to be tough for Miami to score points on offense. So can the turnover chain make an appearance on Orlando? Can totally. Miami's defense create havoc? They were number one in the country in havoc rate last year. And for those who don't know what havoc rate is, that's total combined tackles for loss, passes defended, and forced fumbles divided by total plays. And they were number one by a pretty good margin last year. So they created a ton of havoc plays. That's kind of been Manny Diaz's calling card since he arrived in Coral Gables a few years ago. He's been all about creating pressure, creating turnovers. So can they make Felipe Franks uncomfortable in the pocket? Can they force him into some questionable throws? Can they make him throw the ball before he's ready? And, you know, one thing that Franks did really well last year was take care of the football. And that was a huge boost for Florida because he only had six interceptions last year after really struggling the year before with turnovers. So can he do that again? Can he take care of the football? Because it's a whole different ballgame when turnovers are kind of thrown out there. And that's how Miami in 2017 really overachieved where they should have been is because they were so good at forcing turnovers. And I think it's going to take that kind of um, that kind of stuff on Saturday night for them to be able to have a shot at pulling off an upset as a seven-point dog. They're going to need to create some havoc plays. They're going to need to turn the ball over. And on the other side, Jaron Williams is going to have to take care of the football, manage the game effectively. And, you know, Miami wants to win this game ugly, right? They yeah. want it to be low-scoring and they want to win it ugly. They want to win something like 16-13 or something like that. That's where they're going to be comfortable at with this game. So I think it's all about can Miami force turnovers and can Florida take care of the football? Yeah. I mean, obviously, because if Dan Mullen's offense gets running and Miami finds itself in a shootout, I, I, I don't see that having any chance of working out well for the Hurricanes. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a really good point with Franks as well, because he showed a lot of promise in his first season under Mullen. Um, but at the same time, you know, like while he was great at protecting the football, he was also a 54 percent passer. So, you know, you you took the good with the bad. He wasn't going to make a lot of absolutely abysmal plays for you but he also struggled to more consistently make the the good reliable plays you know he could he could right. put, he could put one over the top and absolutely blow your mind um he wasn't going to ruin you that frequently but he also wasn't going to you know keep things moving as consistently as possible so i think that's a yeah a, a great reason to be watching franks as well you know, he, he's always been able to make the spectacular play, but he's always struggled to make the simple play. I think yep. that's always been the knock on Franks, is he can make the 70-yard bomb and drop it in a basket, and you're just blown away. Like, man, not, there's not that many players in the country who can make that pass. And he's got a simple, you know, five-yard out route that he overthrows. You yep. know what I mean? So, But I think the good thing is he didn't take a lot of unnecessary risks last year. He understood that he had a good running game behind him. 
He had a lot of talent on the outside, and he had a great defense behind him as well, you know. So you don't have to take the unnecessary risk, throw the ball away. And he did that a lot. That's part of the reason he's a 54% passer is because he threw the ball away a lot last year and didn't take those gambles. He managed the game effectively, and that was big. And, you know, he really took a step, too, at the end of last season. You look how good Florida was uh, their last four games, you know, routing Florida State in their rivalry game and then smashing Michigan in the bowl game. They were, you know, really making that stride, and it would be really interesting if that carries over into this game or if Miami's able to come out and kind of shock the world. I don't think that many people are giving the Canes much of a shot in this game. I know seven points isn't that big of a spread, but I I don't know what public money is going to end up looking at by the time of the game, but I think a lot of people are going to be betting the Gators. Yeah, well, that said, uh, who are you, who would you be betting, John, at with a seven-point spread there? It's I'm so on the fence. I think Florida's going to win the game, mm-hmm. but seven points, like it's just right there. That's about what I would expect. I'm gonna say Florida covers the seven just because I expect I expect it to be a pretty close game, kind of a dog fight. I think the safe bet um with this is the uh is the under forty seven. Because yeah. right now the over under sitting at forty seven. I think the under is a really safe bet. I know forty seven's not a lot and a couple big defensive plays completely blows that out of the water. So it's kind of a gamble, but barring a bunch of turnovers, I expect this to be a real slug fest defensively. Both defenses kind of take it in center stage, but my guess is Miami's up by, you know, four, four to seven points in the fourth quarter. And then Jaron Williams makes a big mistake in the fourth, trying to lead a, a drive and we get a pick six by CJ Henderson or somebody in that really deep and loaded Florida secondary that kind of gives Florida the two score win. All right, I I, I I like that. I um, I'm more inclined because you know I think it's going to be a low scoring game. I'm totally with you on the under on this game. I you know I think twenty seven twenty is about the most you could possibly expect out of a game like this between a couple of rivals with great defenses. Um, so yeah, I would I I'm going to actually take Miami against this spread. I'm with you. I think Florida wins the game outright, but. I think because it's going to be that kind of a 16-13-2016 type of slugfest, I, 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 right. I, I, would, I would take that. I, I think it's just too big a spread to, to have that much faith in Florida yet. I expect the spread to go up, too, as exactly. we get closer. I think a lot of people are going to bet Florida. So I think the smart play for all you junkies out there who are trying to get their gambling fixed in week zero is to wait until a little closer to kickoff and wait for it to go up because I expect it to settle somewhere around, especially with Miami announcing a freshman or redshirt freshman starting at quarterback that we're going to get it around nine and a half or so when it closes and then you might want to jump on the Canes. Yeah, I think that's really, really another good thing to watch because we do have another couple days for it to close on us. Um, Awesome. So uh, with that said, let's shift gears. Because we do have a second game coming in week zero as well. Um, this is our night game, our, our little batch of Pac-12 after dark, if you will. Um, Arizona heads to Hawaii to face the Rainbow Warriors. Um, this will be airing 1030 Eastern, so definitely an after dark game for those of us who are now on the East Coast. Um <laughs> It's going to be a rough adjustment to everybody. You'll hear me complain about that more than once this season, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, that said, um, obviously, the you know, big non-conference game for both teams, I think. You know, Arizona's leads the all-time series. Hawaii's never beaten them. Um, you know, when they met three years ago, 
this was a 47-28 win for Arizona in Tucson. So, you know, meeting up in Honolulu, we'll see what happens. Both teams are, you know, this isn't a ranked battle or anything. This is just, let's have, let's have ourselves a nice tasty dose of football again. Um, but what this does offer is a battle of two really highly touted quarterbacks who, you know, could really make some noise on a national level this year. So I'm really going to make this a fun game, especially because as we've talked about with Hawaii, they could be a real contender in the in the Mountain West and in the group of five race this year. So um, what are your initial thoughts when you saw this game as a week zero game, John? You know, for a while, it was the marquee game of the weekend. You know, that was the one we were going to be all kind of keeping an eye on until Florida and Miami moved. So I'm excited about it because there's a couple interesting storylines. Like you said, we're both we both talked about in the Mountain or in the group of five crew. We were talking about the Mountain West, how we think Hawaii's got a really good shot at making some noise this year um, with Nick Rolovich really getting the ball rolling on the island. And those guys really looking like the Hawaii teams that were so exciting in years past. And you on the other side of the coin, you've got an Arizona squad that really disappointed in Kevin Sumlin's first year in Tucson. And, you know, they have one of the more exciting players in college football, too, in Khalil Tate. And can he get back to the 2017 Khalil Tate versus the 2018 Tate that was kind of hampered all season by injury with the ankle injury he had? And he really slowed him down because in 2017, there was – only a handful of players in the country who were as exciting as he was. So can he be that guy again? This will be the first taste of that. And, you know, if you're not a fan of defenses and Florida versus Miami doesn't really do it for you, <laughs> Arizona and Hawaii is going to do it for you because that's going to be a game that points are going to be scored all night long. Um, we're going to have two teams that really know how to move the football, two really big offensive coaches, two impressive quarterbacks, you know, on the other side of things, Cole McDonald had a outstanding year for Hawaii last year. So I, it's going to be fun. I think the over is the play there more so than anything else. Um, Certainly. With two teams that can really, you know, move the football. The over is currently sitting at 71. I think, uh, I think that's going to hit. Oh, yeah. um, I would be comfortable putting some money on that right now. Because I think both defenses are going to really struggle. Uh, key matchup in that game, Zach, if you're looking at that, for me, I, I wonder which defense is going to make a play when they need to. Mm. right? Because even in shootouts, you end up having a big defensive play at some point that kind of swings the game. And you'll get you know a big turnover or just a big third or fourth down stop in enemy territory. You know Which defense is going to be able to make that play? that kind of swings the game, who can make that extra crucial stop when they absolutely have to? Because my expectation is, you know, a lot of times in early season games, you have some sloppy offensive play, but these two coaches are so well-versed in the offensive game, two veteran quarterbacks. I expect the ball to be moving back and forth, touchdowns to be scored all game, really. And it's just back and forth and whoever, it's one of those games where I feel like whoever has the ball last is going to have the best opportunity to win the game. But I, I think it's whatever defense is able to make a play late in the fourth quarter to really swing the game. Or maybe it could even be one, you know, Zach, because it's such a high-scoring game where a defense makes a big stop in the first quarter, and that's what ends up swinging the game because there's just so much back and forth. But what are you looking for with this one? You know, um, I think defense is a great place to be looking. I was specifically looking at Hawaii's front seven. This was a team that was not good against the run last year. 
uh, you know, they ranked uh, 103rd in the country in rushing defense. They gave up more than 200 yards per game. Just an absolutely ghastly rushing defense. Um, and the fact as well that they gave up, you know, more than 35 points per game. I think the really scary thing is when you're playing against a team that has a really good, you know, mobile quarterback like Khalil Tate, when you're also playing a team with a great running back like J.J. Taylor, and with a, you know, a really solid offensive line as well, that's going to be the big challenge for Hawaii. Because I think their secondary can, you know, do some things to sort of um, mitigate some really big plays against them. I think table hit them for one or two, but I think for the most part, Hawaii's, you know, defensive backfield is going to be able to get it covered. Um, so the big thing is, is what, what can they do against Arizona's ground game? Because if they can't stop the Wildcats on the ground, Tate doesn't need to throw the ball more than 12 or 15 times in that game. Um, you know, all the throwing will be done by Cole McDonald. If, we don't, you know, if that front seven can't hold its own against Arizona. And so that's really what I'm watching for is that's the real, is Hawaii actually have any potential to be in that group of five race? Because, you know, if they acquit themselves well, even if they don't win this game, if they acquit themselves well against Arizona in a really exciting Arizona offense, it's going to bode well for their chances with the selection committee down the road if they do indeed contend for the Mountain West like we're expecting. Yeah, I mean, credit to Hawaii, too, for really scheduling up, too. Mm -hmm. You know, their first three games of the season are all against Pac-12 opponents, and they finished the season against Army, one of the you know top teams uh, outside of the Power Five conferences. So really credit to them for really going for it. If, like we talked about in the – group of five preview if they're a team that can win 11 or 12 games this year it's going to be hard to leave them out particularly if they can grab a mountain west title to go with it just because they played such a grueling schedule you know not just in conference and a really good league in the mountain west but challenging themselves like this at a conference in terms of how it comes down right now you got arizona according to bovada as an 11 point favorite i think that's too high yeah. i i would this feels to me, honest to God, with it being played at Hawaii like a pick 'em. Like, yeah. I could see uh, maybe they're too biased because I was high on the Rainbow Warriors in our in our conference previews. But I, I do think they're going to cover the 11 spread. I feel comfortable. I'm surprised if we see that spread really start tanking down as we approach and get closer to kickoff. I could see it coming down, you know, to eight and a half, nine points instead. But I really like Hawaii plus 11. I'd I'd hesitate to go outright and say they're going to win the game outright um, as much as I'd really like to, uh, but I'm going to straddle the fence and not make that official pick so I can just say I told you so in either direction. <laughs> but I do like Hawaii plus 11. I do too. I really do. I, you know, even if they drop to nine, nine and a half, like you said, I like Hawaii there. I think this is a one score game no matter what happens. You know, you mentioned it's going to be something where. Um, it comes down to who has that last possession. I think you're absolutely right about that, which, you know, inevitably means that it's going to come down to eight points or less. Um, so, yeah, I think as long as the spread doesn't drop below seven, unless you see some really dramatic betting on Hawaii, that's not going to happen. Um, so, 
um, yeah, I definitely would take Hawaii. And honestly, I'm I'm really tempted as well to pull the trigger, and I very well might look for Hawaii to come out on this one. Um, I really think they're gonna they're gonna pull it out against Arizona. I think it's gonna be one of those things where they just have you know one more big throw over the top at the end. I could totally see Cole McDonald coming through with the, you know, that sort of last gasp, last few seconds, you know, desperation heave down the field that finds his guy and, uh, you know, sends everybody there on the islands just absolutely celebrating. To hell with it, man. I'm going Hawaii, too. I'll take Hawaii outright. When I wrote the season preview for Hawaii, I counted her don't as a win so i'm not going to back down now um what do you think that does for someone's seat if they lose the opening week game uh on the road to hawaii obviously it's a tough game and obviously you know arizona is sort of one of those sleeper teams that could make waves in the pac-12 south and what we you know we mentioned in the preview is a really wide open pac-12 south um, I think if he does lose to Hawaii and you start to see them fighting for bowl eligibility before they even get to the conference slate, that's going to really, you know, start to heat things up under him. If Arizona misses a bowl game this year, Sunland's days are going to be numbered. They really will. Um, you know, Rich Rich Rod, for all his ills, had he won division titles, you know, every five years or so you at least got something out of it obviously i'd prefer to see someone get those five years to see if he can win one in a five-year span um because you know i think the way the pac-12 south is and the way it's continuing to go that's very possible um but you know i yeah i agree with you i think that his seat will get hot if they do lose this hawaii game and so i'm calling for someone's seat to get hot even though i really like someone as a coach same. Yeah, I hate it for him, but I, I think Hawaii's got a chance to be really special this year, and I'm really excited to kind of see them kick it off against a, against a really tough opponent in the opening week. Yeah. Um, you know, and even before we get these FBS games, you know, these are obviously sort of our prime time, you know, late night, you know, delights. But there are also a couple of fun games at the FCS level to, to sort of offer the appetizers the hors d'oeuvres if you will for our our week zero smorgasbord um and i was just looking at them quickly you know villanova at colgate youngstown state at samford sort of back to back and uh you know that noon slot and that early afternoon slot i'm really excited for these games obviously i love the fcs um and i think they're both going to be really good games i personally think that um you know, these are also going to be games that come down to the final score. I like Youngstown State this year. I think they're going to have a really good team. And then I think that Villanova-Colgate game could could really go either way. And it's going to set the tone for, for both of those teams this season. So personally, I'd pick, um, I'd pick road, road victories for both of these games. I'd go 1-1. One, one. I like 
I like Youngstown State a lot this year, too. I think they'll get the win on the road against Sanford. Although Sanford can be sneaky good. Oh, yeah. We saw them really sneak up and nearly upset Florida State last year early in the season in one of the crazier games until the end when FSU got a pick six late in the fourth quarter to kind of seal the deal. But I like Colgate a lot this year. I think they're a legit team, and I think – I think it's a toss-up against Villanova. You know, Villanova is always a tough team on the FCS level, but I think Colgate having that home field advantage will be able to pull out a close victory. But those are two sneaky good games that will be fun to watch. It's like you said, the appetizer before we get to the the main course uh, of Florida, Miami, and then dessert, I guess, with Arizona and Hawaii to finish the night. Exactly. Just remember out there, fans, you haven't had football, live football, since January soak it all in on saturday so yeah don't you know obviously sleep in till noon if you're on the west coast sleep in till nine crack a 9 a.m breakfast beer and enjoy some early games um because it's going to be a great full day of football i'm really excited for week zero and on that note uh, after we take this quick break we're going to talk a bit more about other things we're excited about with Week Zero, namely what we're going to be eating and drinking as we tailgate our way into the new season. So stay tuned for that after the break. Welcome back for our final segment of the Week Zero Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki once again here with John Mitchell. We've been talking a bit this week about the 150th anniversary of college football, and then we broke down uh, how we think the Week zero games are going to go. And now for our final segment, in the spirit of, um, you know, our tailgater heritage, if you will, um, we just wanted to dive in a bit for this segment and talk about what we're going to be eating and drinking for the upcoming week. Um, you got any good drinks that you've uh, you've got in mind for, for sipping on while you catch these first games of the season? Absolutely. I've recently relocated to Baldwin County, Alabama, and one of the local breweries around here is called Fairhope Brewing mm. and they make a really good IPA. It's called Fairhope Take the Causeway IPA, which is one of the roads around there. And it's really good. I had it at a restaurant a couple of weeks ago and I went recently to Publix and bought um a you know six pack of cans and everything. So I'm pretty excited. I've been saving it for a special occasion, I guess, to break them open while I sip on cheap beer during the week because, you know, that's life and waiting to break those open for college football season. And that's starting this Saturday. Another one kind of fancier uh, that I made a lot last year. We had a, a kind of tradition last year on college football Saturdays. We would all go to my uncle's house to watch the Alabama games. We would usually get there if the Alabama game was at six or something like that. And I would get there in time to watch the sec on CBS game at two 30 would grill out and would make, you know, I'd have some cocktails ready. And one of the ones I made, it's called a Yellowhammer, and okay. it's from Galette's Bar in Tuscaloosa. And what it entails is some vodka, some rum, some amaretto sour, or just amaretto, sorry, amaretto sour is just a drink. So amaretto, pineapple juice, orange juice, and if you're feeling fancy, you can do a, a cherry garnish on the top. We didn't usually get that quite fancy, but very delicious drink. I would make a giant pitcher, and my family and I would go through that pretty quickly it would rarely last until the alabama game uh but but a very good drink a very sneaky alcoholic drink i should say too it'll get you to where you're going rather quickly with all that liquor in it i was gonna say yeah that sounds like a dangerously smooth and dangerously delicious <laughs> drink for sure 
Um, Absolutely. I love the name, too, the tribute to the state. That's beautiful. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, for me, I, you know, I obviously just relocated as well um, all the way across the country, which is kind of crazy for me. Um, but, you know, here in, in Pennsylvania, I've really been enjoying catching up with some of the local scene. And uh, the thing I'm actually looking forward to is a little bit lighter. Um, normally, I'd go for the IPA, so I'd love to try what you're drinking. Um, but I'm actually looking at the Trogues uh, Sunshine Pills. I'm looking for a nice Pilsner, um, you know, late summer, you know. Um, still really warm out. We've talked about this um, when that Miami-Florida game first moved up. We talked about it a bit in terms of, you know, these games moving up higher and higher into the calendar and what that's going to do for players in terms of, of being in the heat. Also got to think about fans out in the heat. I'm looking for something that's going to just be really light and refreshing in the sun. And this, you know, Sunshine Pills, I think, is going to go really great with the uh, pineapple chicken kebabs I'm going to be making for for that game in uh, honor Absolutely. of Hawaii playing that night game. Um, looking, at, <laughs> looking at putting a nice ginger pineapple teriyaki marinade on these things, get them marinating for a couple of hours, probably grill them out, uh, probably do it at like halftime of the, the you know, main the the main feature that Miami Florida game and then just have them for the second half and into the beginning of the the Arizona Hawaii nightcap um I always love doing stuff like that I don't know who or how many people I might even have over here I might end up just eating them all myself but you know sometimes a tailgate is fun that way too is when you get to be the glutton and and put down everything you cook that you know you like um, so um, absolutely that sounds awesome yeah you got any uh anything you're looking to be munching this week as well anything that you like keeping it yeah keeping it pretty simple to be honest with you not going full out because we're not just still you know yeah. so it, it's a good week to experiment with stuff you got some weird recipes you want to try before you start hosting your tailgate parties at your house this is the week to do it i don't have any strange ones but one that's really easy simple but also effective that my fiance actually makes i'm not going to take credit for it it's just it's a cheese ball and i don't uh -huh. know if there's a more perfect like little game day snack than a big ball of cheese covered in bacon and with some ritz crackers dipped into it it's very simple and it's also extremely delicious and before you know it you've eaten half a cheese ball so there i mean it's it's fantastic very simple recipe uh like i said it's just it's cream cheese and like shredded cheese all over it and then just rolled around in bacon bits uh and it's fantastic it was a huge winner at those tailgate parties we had last year we'd bring that every week and everybody would just destroy that while we were grilling out or cooking the rest of the stuff we were going to make for the night so simple yet effective and that's really what i look for when it comes to tailgate foods totally yeah i'm with you there um you know i sometimes like to to tailor what i'm eating to the you know, the regions of the game I'm watching or whatnot, which was the spirit yes. of what I was looking at for this week. Um, I guess that's the old chef in me or whatnot, but. Um, no, we did, we did a low country boil for the Alabama LSU game last year and did uh, like shrimp and uh, boudin and sausage and all kinds of stuff like that in a boil. So no, we do the, we do the same stuff where I'm around. So I totally. understand that makes total sense to me. Love it. Um, well, yeah, for all of you out there listening, um, I'd love for you to 
to shoot out some of the things that you guys will be eating and drinking for the tailgate uh, this week as you you prepare for the start of the college football season, whether you're actually out tailgating outside a stadium or just, you know, having some friends or family at home, uh, you know, grilling in the backyard and having the game on, um, whatever it may be. Um, I just really hope that everyone out there has something, something great to eat and drink with themselves as they catch up with uh, football because we get our first real dose of football, everybody. Um, it's been a long time coming. I know we've been constantly whining for it the past five months and it's finally here. Um, anything else you'd like to, to just say to get everybody jazzed up, John? You know, it's don't sleep on the week zero games. You made a great point earlier where you're talking about we haven't had any real live football in so long. Because let's be honest, the NFL preseason does not count. That does not count as real football. Um, and months ago, we would have done anything for an FCS afternoon game. So don't sleep on those games. Don't sleep on the nightcap of Arizona and Hawaii. Let's have a great opening Saturday and really leading into what's going to be another great opening weekend when you get to the week one with a lot of interesting games. We're fired up to be with you every week and doing this. Um, this is something we both really enjoy. We really relish the opportunity to talk to each other about football every week and just really excited that you guys come back and listen every week. So we got some fun stuff on tap, man. Certainly. Yeah. And so, yeah, enjoy these week zero games. And when we come back to talk with you next Wednesday, we're going to have a full slate to catch up on um, both all the action we saw this past Saturday and uh, what we'll have coming up in the next one. So thanks, everybody. Enjoy your upcoming weekend of football. And we'll be back with you next Wednesday.